Hey, this is Nathan Ray, and this is my friend, Caleb Sarecki. Hey, Caleb. What's up, Nathan? I'm tired. I'm very tired. Yeah, been a week. It's been a crazy week. We'll get into that later on. But how do we know each other? We both went to Vanguard Bible College at the same time, although I don't feel like that's where I met you first. You started coming to Hybrid, which is the church I go to, been there my whole life. And then when you started coming, that's when I think I noticed you. And I think that's where we had our first conversation. I could be wrong. I think the first thing I noticed about you was the way you worship, which was very, at least at the time, very like... It felt unrestricted. Other people might have had trouble sort of raising their arms and and sort of doing anything that's sort of like an outward display of worship. But I remember you were like running up and down the aisles and like, (laughs) you know, you were like yelling and you were like all into it. And I thought like, oh, there's somebody who's free. And that was before I ever met you. And then I think we started to talk just because I was part of the leadership. And whenever new people would come, I'd definitely greet them, say, what's up? How you doing? How you like the service? That kind of thing. So I think that's how we, is that how you remember it? I remember it a little bit differently. I think it was the second time that I had come to hybrid. I know the first time I went to hybrid, I think you were preaching and there was something that you said in the service that elicited a reaction from me. And you seemed to take that reaction fairly well. And so that was probably the first quote unquote interaction we had with each other. But the first conversation I remember having with you happened about a week later on my second visit to the church. I was dealing with some personal relationship issues that I'm not going to get into right now. And they were really tied to the reasons why I was going to hybrid in the first place. And I remember talking with you about whether or not this was worth it. And I think the impression that I got from you during the conversation was that you were very wise and knowledgeable, which is kind of weird because like you were probably at the same age that I am right now. And it's interesting how perspective changes as you get older and you realize what really matters in life. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think I remember that conversation. We had a couple of those deep conversations right from the beginning. I think like you struck me as being very sort of uh, unfiltered and honest, maybe too honest, which I kind of like in people when it's like you don't have to like really dig to get to the core of who they are. And they're just like comfortable being vulnerable, I suppose, because I always feel like you can really grow when you're like that, as long as you're not, you know, you're discerning and like who you open yourself up to, because everybody wants to know what's going on. Not everybody wants to help, you know what I mean? And so sometimes, you know, if you're too open and you reveal everything from the beginning, people will like share that. And then you have yourself in a situation where you you got a group of people look at you weird. But I think maybe it was because you saw me preaching at the beginning and you saw me in leadership. I think sometimes that opens up the door for people to feel comfortable being, you know, kind of honest about what they're going through. Speaking of what we're going through, how has God been working in your life over the last week? So much. I think you and me had a conversation driving back on Sunday and we were kind of talking about that. But for me, there's a lot that's been happening. At church, we had, we called them encounter nights where 
we kind of, this is our first one where we kind of got together and we didn't really have so much of a structure, but we were just like, we're going to press after God and we're going to let him do and let the spirit of God do what it needs to in this moment. And we were there for, I think, four hours. Yeah, you were, you were, I think, doing something else. So we were coming off of that, which felt like a, like a very deep spiritual high. And the, the Tuesday prayer night that we, we have weekly, the night, you know, leading into that encounter night was very powerful. And I was leading that. And God, I feel like, has really been speaking to me through his word. And I think the thing that comes to me, it's out of First Peter. No, out of Second Peter, like kind of the first little couple chapters there where Peter's sort of addressing the church and he tells them, and it's an interesting thing because he's writing to people who are being persecuted and who are scattered. And so like the most recent thing in their history was that they had to leave their homes and travel to different cities to avoid being, you know, thrown in jail and beaten and sometimes even killed because of what they believed because of this new faith, right? And he's writing to them, to people who are kind of struggling, you know what I mean? In a similar, I guess, situation to a lot of people today. And he's telling them, hey, you guys, you guys have everything you need. God has given you everything you need for life and for godliness. And he starts to talk about how the one who has called you, you know, God, Jesus, has called you to his own glory, to his own excellence. And he's given us these great and very precious promises. And through these, we participate in the divine nature. And so like the last Sunday before this one, our prayer leader was preaching and she was preaching about how we all used to have a sin nature before we believed. And there's this part of us that we've inherited all the way from Adam that is, we're sort of dead in our sins and, and sort of incapable of pleasing God or going after him. And we're essentially ruled by our sins. And we have this nature that pulls us in that direction at all times. And then she talks about how, you know, when Jesus died for us, he set us free from that. And it was very interesting to me because that, that word sin nature comes up. And then it reminded me of this verse that talks about the divine nature and how we used to have a sin nature. And Peter, as he's opening, he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of him, you know, the knowledge of Jesus. And so that kind of clicked the light on for me, which was the idea of we used to have this sin nature that was dominating us at all times. But through the knowledge of Jesus, through the knowledge of what he's done for us on the cross, through the knowledge of what he's done for us, through his spirit, which he's given to us, through just like the pursuit and knowledge and growing in knowing him experientially, having that personal relationship through knowing him deeper and deeper, we experience more and more this divine nature, which is glorious, which is excellent. And it's like, it's not our excellence. It's not our glory. It's not our track record. It's not how good we've been this week or that week, but it's purely because of his excellence. And we get to participate in that excellence. His spirit works in us through us knowing him. And so to me, that kind of made everything simple, you know, because I feel like we complicate our relationship with God and Christians, you know, I feel like a lot of times are very good at making themselves feel bad about what they're not doing, about the righteousness they might not be fulfilling. And we kind of like judge ourselves based on our track records, based on how good our week has or has not been. But I feel like the message of the gospel is about the track record of God, the track record of Jesus, and how we get to step into who he is and share in this nature that is excellent, that doesn't miss a beat, that is always loving, that is always righteous, that is always doing the right thing. And it's like, we have to receive that through just pursuing him. 
and not pursuing, let's say, a million other things that might seem like they're good or right, but seeking him first and then allowing him to transform us and not sort of trying to transform ourselves so that we can impress him, which I feel like is where me and a lot of people fall into. So that's kind of been like the big theme last, like I'd say month for me. I feel like that's what I'm learning. The mouthful, I know. What about you? So initially, I thought that this week, the way that God would be working through my life would be that I just got a job. I was super excited to be starting this job. I managed to acquire guaranteed hours. I'm being paid the highest base salary I've ever earned. It's an exciting time in my life. And then on the first official day of work, two hours into my shift, I get a phone call from our roommate, Nahum. I press hang up because I can't take calls while I'm on shift. But then a couple of minutes later, I get a text message from him saying, Nathan, I just found out that I tested positive for COVID. And in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, no, why, why? I'm not afraid of getting the virus myself. But it's just like, this news couldn't have come at a worse time. First day on the job, you want to make a good impression for your superiors. You want to be able to press forward into the momentum. And it's just not working out for you. I had some hopes and dreams of what I wanted to be able to accomplish over the next month. And for the rest of the year, it feels like being sent home to be stuck in my room for the next two weeks. It's destroying all of those plans. Where, like, (laughs) is it actually destroying those plans? They're not going to fire you because COVID, right? So the job will be waiting for you when you get back. Yeah. And every, all of your creative endeavors, I know you're a very creative guy. Like, that's not like you can't do that from your room. I know. It's a setback. That's all it is. It is a setback. But at the same time, it's like I had a worship night that I wanted to go to tomorrow night. I had a talk that I wanted to go to next week. I wanted to make a certain amount of money by the end of the year. And all three of those various goals, among others, either can't happen now or they're extremely unlikely to happen. And these are goals that I think they're good. They're noble. They're goals that would be pleasing to God. And Mm -hmm. the question that I've been asking God for the last couple of days is, why wasn't this supposed to work out? What do you want me to do with the time that I have right now? Building off from what you said, when I was at church Sunday morning, going to the summit, there was a a guest speaker there by the name of Steve Holmstrom. And in the middle of the service, he said, I'm going to give away a free copy of my book to the person who shouts out that they're thankful the loudest. And in my mind, I thought to myself, I'm getting a free book. I don't care what it takes. I am getting this book. And so I was just shouting out, I'm thankful. I'm thankful. I'm thankful. Just anything to get this book. I got the book. I took it home. I began reading it. I finished reading it yesterday. And it's talking about how the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are two separate things. The kingdom of heaven, it's where we go to after we die, right? As Christians, that's our 
end destination. But the kingdom of God, it's the manifest presence of God here on earth. And it's something that not a whole lot of people know about. Those who do know about it, they're not necessarily willing to press into it because it costs a lot but the cost is worth it. And it's made me think about, I've never really thought of it this way. I thought that like the presence of God, it's what you experienced in a super spiritually charged environment. Other people had to come and we had to sort of build up this, I guess, power or energy. I know that sounds really new agey, but I can't think of a better way to describe it. And we could experience God through coming together. And I think I've come to realize that it doesn't have to be that way. And with the time that I have right now, I have more time than I know what to do with. And I can use that time to grow closer to God and understand him and his personality. And I think that might be why I'm stuck at home for the next two weeks aside from all the different creative projects that I'm going to be working on as well. Yeah, I know you weren't there Saturday, but Pastor Sam was saying something and he mentioned this story in Acts of Paul, right? He's, you know, he's a missionary. He wants to go preach the gospel. You know, he said that, you know, Peter, those guys are preaching to the Jews, but I want to go where Jesus has never been named yet, you know? So that's always his desires. I want to go somewhere where nobody's told anybody about Jesus. And so He's in this city and he wants to go into this region. And in a dream, Holy Spirit kind of redirects him and says, you're not going over there. You're not going where you thought you were going. I need you to go here instead. And Sam was talking about how Paul went with that against his own sort of desire. And I'm not too sure, but I think the place where Paul went instead, I think maybe he's been there before or reason it wasn't where he wanted to go. And the Holy Spirit sort of redirected him. And I think God is doing that in our lives all the time, but we're not always available to what God wants to do in us. We have our own sort of plans and goals and dreams and agendas. And Paul wanted to preach the gospel, right? He wanted to do something for God, but the Holy Spirit had a different plan. And you see this all the time if you read Jesus and the way he operated. It's not the way that people would operate. It was almost like as soon as he did something amazing, always wanted to get out of there and go somewhere else you know and the first comes out and has this big sort of like thing where he just heals everybody people are coming to crowds and he goes off and he he goes into like the wilderness and he goes to pray and then when he comes back and he's like yeah i'm leaving his disciples are like dude look at all this like there's so many people here who want us we want to continue the moment we want to continue the revival we want to you know and jesus is like dude i didn't come just for one town there are others who need me, right? He feeds 5,000 people out of a little boy's sack lunch. And he's like, all right, let's go over the lake and go to the other side. So they can talk to one guy who's possessed. And that one guy impacts the whole 10 cities around. And I think the Holy Spirit has a mission. So I guess the question that I want to ask What would you say to people who might say, God isn't in this, he doesn't exist, this is just random bad luck that has happened to you guys? Like, I feel like people have that optimism or that pessimism, and it's kind of, it's based on the way you see the world, because the world is not all bad, and it's not all good. And I I always feel like the Bible has the greatest sort of diagnoses of the world we live in, and what life is, you know? The Buddhists will say that life is suffering and 
the best you can hope for is to try to transcend that suffering and try to escape it, which is kind of like where their idea of nirvana comes from, which is like, you know, you sort of escape the suffering in a way through escaping the cycle of rebirth and you sort of escape suffering through non-existence almost. Now, I'm sure there, it's deeper than all of that, but that's what I learned in my world religions class. And then there's, you know, people who say that life is essentially good, but we have some issues, but, you know, people are generally good hearted and whatever. Right. And I think both are kind of wrong. Beauty exists, evil exists, good exists. And I think there's a struggle between the two. And so, you know, the Bible, it says that humans are created in the image of God and have these characteristics to have this sort of divine spark, but they are fallen and twisted by sin. And so they have this sort of sin nature, but there's also a part of them that longs for good and wants the good. But there's a part of them that desires sort of jealousy, revenge, destruction up to the individual in the sense of, are you making things worse? Are you making things better? And a big part of whether or not you're doing that has to do with what you believe about the world. And for me, you know, like the Christian sort of perspective on the world is that essentially you know the bible says that the god of this world is the devil you know that he is sort of in control and there's a lot of evil in this world because there's a lot of sort of rebellion against the kingdom of god and as we reject god it's almost like rejecting the very thing that is in control of whether or not we have you know a good or bad life and so it's like it's hard to fight against god you can't really do it. But the Christian ethic says you can know him. You can actually know him and that he actually loves you. And that as we know him and submit to his will and stop resisting him, trying to transcend him, be better than him, act like we don't need him, he actually works things out for our good. And the Bible's kind of filled with stories like that. And so we live sort of in this eternal battleground between the Bible calls it the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus said like, hey, I'm here. And guess what? I've come to put an end to the kingdom of darkness and I've called you out into the light. And so there's the view that like God is behind everything and everything's his fault and every good and bad thing is his fault or his blessing. And then there's the view that, hey, you know what? There also exists the devil and there is a force behind evil. You know what I mean? And there is a force behind good. And we as humans have been given the freedom to choose our allegiances and to make things better or worse. And that we have that choice. And we also have the capability to endure and become better by it. Like that is just facts. The way you suffer matters. There is sort of an unavoidable amount of that in this world, but the difference between somebody whose life is great and whose life is not great isn't that one of them doesn't have bad days or weeks or difficult times, but it's the way they choose to embrace, overcome, and learn from those times. You know, if you have this view that like, oh, you know what, I'm trying to do good here, but it's impossible and the universe is conspiring against me. Which is interesting because I feel like atheists and people who don't say they believe in God often speak as if there is some force that opposes them, even though they may not believe in a actual good God. And, and often you can say things are random or there's a story behind this. And I guess the question is, which one is the actual better life? And to me, the way I see it is your life is not any better off believing that nothing matters. 
that kind of view of this world and life in general leads to if there is no afterlife, then all that matters is this world. You can kind of see it both ways. One is like, you only live once, YOLO. So everything I do matters and I can enjoy this life as much as possible. Or YOLO, you only live once, everything doesn't matter. So, you know, why not just sit in your basement? And there is this battleground and the way you honor him and live for him will actually affect the quality of not just your life, but everyone's life. Life is a lot more meaningful, but it's also a lot more responsibility that's placed upon you. And I think a lot of the atheistic types, as much as just in my limited anecdotal relationship with the people who kind of believe that, often I find that it's a lot more about not wanting to be responsible for everything they're doing. And a lot more about maybe supposed hypocrisy of people who are believers, who supposedly believe in this better way. And then when they see inconsistencies with people who essentially believe in love, which is a deep part of the Christian sort of morality and ethic and motivator. And when they see that not really playing out, often I feel like people are turned off to this idea of God having a plan for their life because of anecdotal things and not because of the inherent lack of reasonableness in that sort of way of looking at the world. And I feel like it's up to us to really show the divine nature that God has given us, to show that we are created in the image of God, to let God be reflected in our actual lifestyles, our actual speech and language and action in the world. Love is a powerful argument against evil and against hopelessness and against there being no God. I always found that the best argument against somebody who's really cynical and bitter and whatever is remaining loving, especially, especially when the person that you are showing love to is acting unlovable. You know what I mean? And reacting in a way that is not deserving of that love because that becomes a strong counter evidence and argument for their perspective. The only thing about that is those moments have to become more consistent. That has to be our lifestyle. Can't just be like things that we do every now and then. But if, if you have a strong, consistent, loving attitude towards somebody who doesn't give a damn whether or not you exist or doesn't care about you and is living selfishly, that burns, you know what I mean, on the inside. People only really realize how they have been living in a way that's sort of godless and immoral is when they see somebody who's filled with God and is living a life that is moral and not just in a way that's sort of prideful and like it's kind of like my status as a Christian makes me better than you but when they just see like oh you know that person isn't so concerned about looking like appearing good just like everybody else in this world that person cares about people that person is generous that person is not yelling back at the person that's yelling at them they're not engaging in what in this culture in this time everyone we're so used to the clap back culture right which is like you said this to me oh look you know you <laughs> wait till you see what i have for you but instead jesus said turn the other cheek which isn't do nothing it's actually take action in a way that's super compelling and makes people really reconsider their actions. You know, there's something powerful about turning the other cheek in real life as an actual strategy. When somebody comes at you crazy and you're just like, hey man, maybe I made a mistake. And if I did, 
point that out to me, I'm sorry. But why are you yelling at me? Why are you angry? I'm a human being, man. So are you. And not taking the bait and showing love and showing like, hey, man, listen, I know you're frustrated. You might have had a bad day, but I love you anyway. Not because of what you've done, not because you vote the way I vote, but because Jesus loved me so much that in all my mess, he died for me. And so I'm going to love you that same way, not because you earned it, but because I am so greatly loved. I always say when it comes to atheists, you know, I was in U of A for a while and I had these debates and I never lost one of them, but I also never, <laughs> you know, I won a lot of arguments and I, I, I didn't win a lot of souls. And it's like, what do I say to uh, atheists? It's like, it's not so much about beating them in their arguments. It's, it's about demonstrating the reality of Jesus in your life and showing them that, hey, the love that the Bible talks about, which is a unique, different thing than what the world calls love. And if you demonstrate, hey, that thing that the Bible calls love is a real thing and it's alive in my heart towards you, there's nothing more powerful in dismissing all of the, hey, everything's meaningless and blah, blah, blah. But hey, if you are living a life where you live like the people around you matter, like life means something and you stand up for the justice and not in a way that's like vengeful or angry, but you do that in a way that demonstrates love for all concerned, even how despicable the person that you are showing love to is, that is such a counterpoint to what people expect, it sticks out. So what would you say to people who might claim that you're just spouting off theory and you've never had to do any of this yourself? I have. What does that look like then? I mean, I could tell you stories, man. Right now, uh, I work as a cashier and I uh, work uh, for, you know, a home improvement company. And because of the whole COVID situation, I know most people are kind of struggling, but Lowe's, Rona, Home Depot, like they're doing really well. Everybody is trying to build a deck or, you know, fix their home. So it's like there's this huge boom. So we have a lot of customers and not enough employees to deal with increased demand. And I've had a couple of situations with customers who are, you know, just stressed out. And if you're listening to the news every day, and if you're on social media every day, man, you're going to be stressed out. <laughs> and then you go in and you have to wait in a line for a long time, especially when uh, COVID was new. And oh, by the way, you have to wear a mask while you're in store all day. And oh, maybe there's not enough employees. So you go to your department and there's nobody to answer your question. And then you get to the cashier and you just unload on them. And I, you see how different people handle it. Most people, when somebody freaks out at them and yells at them, they will respond in kind in some way. Now, you know what I mean? Like maybe they won't yell back at a customer because that's not a good look. You might get fired. But people will like, you know, you just see it. People stop being helpful. They stop trying to be civil. And then they say, you know what I mean? They're just like, well, that's just the way it is, man. You know? And usually that just kind of balloons and then they have to call the manager and everybody's like, that guy, that customer was a jerk. There's this one guy, he was like, I just called him on the phone and I was like, hey man, sorry, we don't have your uh, order. We're going to have to cancel. I'm sorry about that. And then he's just like, hey man, you know, like, and he was just going off on me. This is unacceptable. This is blah, blah, blah. And there's nothing I can do to change it. Right. And he's just like, you know what? I've been waiting for this long and all this stuff. And he's getting more and more heated. And you know, there's 
there's the choice and it's effective strategy. That's what, that's the thing I want to say is it actually works in real life. You can choose to clap back and say, you know, relax. Why, you know what I mean? You just like, Hey, I'm just telling you, man, you know, we don't have it or whatever. Or you can choose to not engage in that way, not fight back, but instead overcome evil with good, which is what the Bible says, which people think doesn't work, but it works. You know, my response to him was just like, Hey man, I'm sorry about that. You know, I'm sorry that you had to go through that. And it was like a genuine, I'm sorry, right? Because I tried to put myself in his position. And it's like, you know what? I would be pretty cheesed if I was him. Like, I'd be pretty angry. I was just like, man, I'm sorry about that. I've often found that when you try to explain why things are not going the way the customer wants them to, it doesn't help them. When you just, you calm down and you just say, hey, man, I'm sorry. And you just own it. Their attitude changes almost on a dime. And he's just like, yeah, man, uh, I know it's not your fault. Uh, Thank you for giving me the call. And he hung up. You know, he responded better because I was like, he's trying to take it out on me. He's verbally, you know, coming at me. And I'm just like, turn the other cheek. I'm like, we're not fighting. You know, I'm not your enemy. And the dude just calmed right down. I can give you many stories. I remember the one I always tell my youth group, two separate occasions in the theater. One was I did not handle it in a way that I would recall turning the other cheek. I'm in the theater and I'm absent. My I'm talking to the person beside me, you know, during the commercials, and I'm kind of absentmindedly kicking the chair in front of me, not even noticing I'm doing it. The guy kind of turns around and says, stop kicking my chair, right now, like angrily, right? <laughs> you know, I just, I responded with aggression. I was like, yo, sit down and watch the movie, man. You know what I mean? And for the rest of the movie, I was tense. This guy was tense. We couldn't really enjoy the movie because there's this thing hanging in there between us. And there's obviously, you know, when you get aggressive like that, there's always the threat of violence. Is this going to turn into something more? And on the way out, we're kind of like, is this going to pop off, you know? Which, you know, in, in a kind of perverse way, people kind of like that. They enjoy that. They're like, oh, you know, he stood up for himself and blah, blah, blah. You know, people kind of cheer those moments on where somebody treats you like a jerk and then you out jerk them back kind of, you know, and the guy sat down and he, he, he did shut up and he did watch the movie. But man, we did not enjoy that movie, both of us. And what's more than that, the girl he was with didn't enjoy the movie. And it was just kind of nobody benefited. There was a very similar situation, like maybe a year or two later, where I'm in the movie theater. Maybe I'm talking to my friend. Person in front of me turns around and is like, you know, shut the hell up, you know? (laughs) And he's just kind of angry. And I I responded differently because, you know, Christ is now a thing in my life. And so instead of, who the hell are you? You know, like, (laughs) instead I said, hey, man. I apologize. I said, hey, man, listen, you're right. I shouldn't have been talking. If, if I've done something wrong, let me know. I will apologize. But hey, I'm a human being. Don't yell at me. Don't talk to me like I'm an animal. And he's like, I'm not yelling, you know? Like, and I was just like, hey, man, listen, I'm sorry, but don't talk to me that way. And he kind of sat down, interestingly enough, because I didn't engage in an aggressive and an angry and a clapback manner. I enjoyed my time. I was peaceful. I knew I did the right thing. So I watched the movie. I enjoyed it. But he didn't. And as I'm walking out of the theater, he was waiting for me. And I thought, oh, snap, what's going to happen, right? (laughs) But he says to me, hey, man, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have been acting like that. And I was just like, for me, that was like, wow, this stuff works. It's difficult for sure, because you have to sort of suppress your instinct to rage back or to defend yourself or whatever. But often just like, if you've done something wrong, you just accept it and not act like it's a big deal. If there is any fault in your hand, you just say, hey man, I'm sorry for my part in this, but hey, you know, 
I'm not angry at you. We're not fighting. Like, I don't, there's no reason we have to yell back and forth. When you act that way, the other person looks like a jerk now. But if you respond in anger, now there's two jerks. But if one of them is super calm and is like not throwing back that sort of aggressive revenge energy and the other person is just yelling, what do you see? You see, oh, there's a crazy person who's, you know, attacking that calm person. If I'm yelling at you and you're just like, hey, man, yeah, it's okay. I'm sorry. Are you okay, man? And you show me love instead. You show me concern. Another quick story. This guy starts yelling at me as I'm cashing him out. And he steps into my space and he's not giving me time to even like scan his items in. He's like, no, 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 do it this way, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, hey, man, can you just take a step back? You know, like we got to keep our six feet. And then he's kind of sitting there stewing. And I feel super uncomfortable. And by the no, I was thinking like, hey, man, you know what? You know, it's easy to just be quiet and let this person become a jerk in your mind and just let them go and be like, oh, they're just, you know, they're unredeemable. But instead, I was just thinking, I was like, no, like, try to connect with this guy. And so I was just like, rough day. You know what I mean? And like, I was like, you know, was it was it a rough day? And then he just like instantly changed. He was like, huh, you know, yeah, man. And he started telling me everything that was going wrong with this day. And, he, and, he, and he's like, you know, I'm, I don't mean to take it out on you. And then he, he suddenly he had so much more patience for me. And he let me scan everything. We got out of there. And he was like, thank you, man. And it's like turning the other cheek works. Showing concern for somebody who's showing you hatred is very powerful. Because it's such a, a juxtaposition, such a contrast that they can't help but feel that. And it's powerful, man. It's powerful because it's so rare. How rare is it for when you're treating somebody poorly that they come back with, are you okay, man? How's it going? Like, how can I help you? They show you positive regard. They show you that they care about your situation. Usually people are like, oh, he's treating me badly. I don't care. Screw him. And that's what people are used to. So what would you say to the people who might say, well, that's not enough. It's not actually going to do anything to solve the problems of the world. It's not going to do anything to help racism. It's not going to do anything to help inequality. We can't always turn the other cheek to other people because other people are always going to be wanting to exploit us. Well, the thing about it is, and I had this conversation with Nahum, our roommate, and he said, like, because people always think turning the other cheek means letting people walk all over you. And it's actually exactly the opposite. People think it means being passive, allowing sort of injustice to flourish. And that couldn't be further from the truth. It's choosing a strategy that's actually going to change people's minds instead of turn them into enemies. And you can look throughout history and you can see people who've done this. You can look at Gandhi, you know, who looked at Jesus's Sermon on the Mount as inspiration for his movement. And he, you know, they did some amazing things where they literally would march into beatings, (laughs) And the thing is, it's not passive. It's not at all what turning the other cheek means. It's standing up nonviolent, which is also what Martin Luther King Jr. was doing, which is also what Nelson Mandela was doing. And if you want to fight a revolution and you want to destroy the enemy, and then you want to have bad blood when you do take over with those guys so that you need to crush their necks so much that they can't even retaliate. Like if that's how you want to live your life, then that is a strategy, but you are going to have bad blood and The demons of that is going to just never go away. Or you can choose to resist in a way that is non-aggressive or non-violent. Like Martin Luther King, they marched on Washington. They marched on Selma. They boycotted. They chose to stay on the back of the bus knowing that they might go to prison. They chose, hey, you know what? I'm going to take my cross. I'm going to do what Jesus did. I'm going to choose to 
face this suffering head on, but I'm going to do it nonviolently. And I feel like that had much more to do with changing people's minds, at the very least, about the legislation in the civil rights movement of that day than, say, the approach of the Nation of Islam and, you know, Malcolm X, and I will defend myself by any means necessary. You know, this idea of the the, the white people are the blue-eyed devils who are, like, there is something fundamentally evil about them. That narrative is very attractive to somebody who's in an oppressed group, let's say. But, you know, unless you're going to lead some kind of crazy revolution where you kill all the white people, you don't have to deal with them anymore. They're by any means necessary stuff. You're going to have to live with white people the next day, the next year, the next month. And Martin Luther's message made white people feel like they could be a part of making things better. You know, his dream, I have a dream one day my children will live in a world where they are not judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. His dream wasn't black supremacy. His dream was, I want to live in a world where my kids are judged because of who they are as people and not because of how they look. And if you want that kind of world, you're not going to create that world by treating your enemies poorly. And you can look through history, like war history. You know, you can look at why why did World War II happen? Well, because, uh, you know, the allies made a really, really tough, hard deal in terms of surrender for the Germans, one that the Germans just couldn't deal with, and it made them angry and resentful. But if they made their terms of surrender and peace not so excruciating, not so, like, let's step on the neck of our defeated enemies, maybe there is no World War II. Maybe a guy like Hitler who's resentful and angry, maybe his message isn't as, as followed if things aren't so bad because the people who beat us in the war are treating us like scum. Like you can, you can look through history and you can see the way, let's say that the Americans treated the Japanese after they had, you know, obviously done some horrific and dropped some bombs on them. But then they're like, Hey, we're going to pay for the rebuilding of your nation. You know, we're going to give you guys, we dropped these bombs on you. We're going to pay for the medical situation. We're going to try to help and rebuild. And the whole of the Marshall Plan, you know, in the World War II. And they're like, yo, we're going to rebuild Europe. We don't have to. But guess what? You know, Woodrow Wilson and those guys, they were like, they were born again believers, man. He was a Sunday school teacher. And he was trying to live out, you know, these biblical ideals. And it's like, I think the world is better off for it. There's plenty of examples of it being effective. It's just very difficult. People don't want to relinquish their revenge. You know, the Bible says, Revenge is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. But a lot of people want to take revenge into their own hands. They don't trust God to take revenge for them. You have your cycle. You know, you have what we have now. If you live in that world where it's like, I have to kill my enemies, you just create more enemies. You're always fighting. But if you turn the other cheek, you stop the cycle. It's not cowering and saying, do whatever you want, but it's standing up and saying, here's my other cheek. I'm not going to turn this into a fight, but what you're doing is wrong. And in that moment, that's oftentimes a lot more effective in creating understanding and changing somebody's mind than an argument or a fight or you're wrong or you're stupid or how could you think that way? Any argument you've ever had, you can, you can just look at it and see the way you respond. When somebody starts to attack you personally, their ability to convince you has disappeared. They can't change your mind now, even if they are right and you are wrong. It's like, we're in a fight. And I'm protecting myself from this person. And you know what? They called me this. Now I'm going to call them something horrible as well. It feels justified. But if that person is like, hey, man, listen, I love you. In no way do I think that 
you know, you are unredeemable, whatever. But because I care about you, I see some things and I might be wrong. You always give the other person that ability to have a way out. I might be wrong. I'm not accusing you of this, but here's what I see, man. And I'm just concerned. That is way more effective in changing someone's mind and getting them to acknowledge wrongdoing than just, you know, you always do this because, because you're such a jerk and because inside you only care about yourself. You know what I mean? Which is what a lot of arguments turn into and not a lot of resolution happens. So we can continue doing that or we can actually believe what's in our Bibles and we can act in such a way where we become evidence for something higher and greater. And, you know, I I found, um, and that's what the Bible says. It says, don't just hear these words, but practice them, man. Do them. And when you do them, you test them out. You actually try them in the real world. It becomes very easy to see whether or not they're effective and they actually work. You know, that's the thing about the Bible. It's not filled with high-minded sounding clever, easily digestible things. It's filled with stuff that is very challenging to your to nature, the part of you that wants to clap back, wants to take revenge, wants to hold grudges, wants to treat enemies poorly. Because the Bible says, love your enemies, which is a very difficult thing to do. And man, you need something like the spirit of God in you to do something like that. Because it's not, that's not normal. Loving your enemies, treating them well. That's so unintuitive. But what happens if you do it? What happens if you try? What happens if the next time you get in an argument with your parents, you say, you know, I'm going to pursue a different strategy on purpose and see the way that plays out. That's the beautiful thing about this. You can always just try it and see if it works. But most people are unwilling because it requires you to be willing to have the conviction. Conviction is one. It it requires like uh, denying yourself. If you want to come and follow me, Jesus said, You have to pick up your cross and deny yourself. It requires you denying your ego and your prideful self. You know, the the part of you that makes you think that, you know what, I deserve good treatment from other people and I'm going to protect myself, which is a very natural instinct, but it requires you to, to deny that and not try to protect yourself from wrongdoing, but to try to overcome evil with good instead of with evil. That's self-denial, man, because you want to hurt people who hurt you. Everyone likes to pretend they have great motives and that they love everybody and that they treat people well. But in reality, most people enjoy hurting people who hurt them in the moment. Obviously, after the fact, you know, when you have to live with the repercussions, it's not so enjoyable anymore. But you have to deny that. And that's not easy, but it's effective. And it's so unique in this world that it might just change somebody's perspective on whether or not God really exists. If you can live that way consistently in front of people, they're going to look at you like an alien. Like, who is this person? What are they on? What are they smoking? I want some of that. You know what I mean? They're going to, they're going to, that's an, it's attractive. When somebody who's actually filled with love and joy and expresses that towards everybody, like, oh, you're treating that jerk in the corner there who treats everybody like a scumbag, you're treating them well. What's wrong with you? What's, something's weird about you. You know what? You seem to have something I don't. What is that? I feel like the most powerful evidence for the non-existence of God is hypocritical Christians. The most powerful evidence for the existence of God is Christians who are exactly what the Bible says Christians are. And then your life is your argument. You don't have to win in an argument. You have to be, hey, man. I know you don't agree with what I say and you don't have to, but I'm just telling you, man, I love you and I'm here for you and God loves you. 
Because you see, the God loves you is hard to believe. But the I love you, you can demonstrate that towards the person. And the fact that you love them even when they're at their worst, it starts to become easier to believe that God loves you. Because loving your enemy is very difficult to do. But when people actually see it, they're like, maybe God does exist. Yeah, I don't know. What do you think? I kind of feel like you need to be on board with the premise in order for it to be successful. So what I'm trying to say is that there are going to be people who look at that lifestyle of people who are unconditionally loving, people who turn the other cheek even when they're being slapped in the face, and they're going to think to themselves, wow, that's radical and it's effective. And then there are going to be other people who look at that lifestyle and who say to themselves, those people are idiots. Nothing they do is going to matter. What is going to matter is us putting through legislation that will ensure that our greater society becomes more moral. Rounding up all the racists and the sexists and the homophobes and publicly shaming them and punishing them so that they don't engage in that kind of behavior ever again. And I know people, I know Christians who are like that. But how effective is that? I mean, we do that to sexual predators, right? Like, we try to do our best to make sure everybody knows who they are. We publicly shame them and we throw them in jail and they don't have a good time in jail. To be like a pedophile in jail is kind of a death sentence. Does it stop pedophiles? Nope. Do we have less? Nope. Yeah, that's the thing. And that's one of the reasons why I really believe in the Bible. I really believe in what the Bible says is because you can't legislate morality. Yeah. You can try to make rules where we live in a society that's fair and where evil is punished, but the heart of mankind is sick and sin is a reality. If you could just make some rules that punished people and that would stop people from doing that thing, then this world wouldn't be the way it was. Why do we need locks on our doors? Why do we have such a massive criminal justice system? Why do we have so many people in jail? You can't enforce righteousness on people. You can't change the culture and the heart of individuals and people by outlawing that behavior. I mean, and Christians have tried and failed. Like the Puritans tried to outlaw alcohol in the States. It didn't work. They tried to outlaw a lot of stuff. It's like whenever we try to do that as Christians, I think we, we fail. And we, we ruin the reputation of Christ and Christians in this world. And at the same time, it's like, it's not the way it is. And you create enemies, right? Like, for instance, if you were somebody who genuinely believed that, let's say, Black people were less than than white people, they were kind of genetically inferior mentally and whatever, right? That was your belief. You grew up believing that way. Like, look over the last, you know, five years or so, six years, and you can just see just in our culture and our news and like, I think with the rise of social media, we see that kind of increase. There is more entrenchment politically between the right and the left than there has been in quite some time. Why? Because it's increasingly more okay to call somebody an idiot. Like, I don't think anybody's ever been called an idiot to their face and has like looked into themselves. Well, you know what? I am being an idiot. Oh, I see the error of my ways. You're right. I don't think that's ever happened once. You know, what ends up happening is they become further justified. Like, you know what the whole white supremacy vibe is about? It's about fear. It's about we are under attack. And anything that the other does that feels like an attack justifies my worldview. Because now they actually are attacking us. Oh, what do we need to do? 
well, I think I need to get the gun out of my closet. I think I need to fight back. Then you have a battle. Then you have what we've seen in the news, right? So it's not an effective strategy. And that's the thing for me. It's like, I'm not as much interested in what feels good because you know what feels good in the moment is screw you. I hate your guts. You're wrong. You're evil. You're bigot. I'm not la 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 la. Not listening to anything you said. That feels good in the moment. But is it effective? Have we seen less or more racist situation? And it's like, is what we're doing effective? That's the problem, I think, with the social media, which exacerbates this stuff, is like people will react and they will act before they think because it's kind of how stuff is designed, right? It's easy to post. It's all about attention grabbing, right? That's what the social media landscape is all about like you know the people who are successful financially on those mediums are people who can grab your attention the fastest and so instead of incentivizing people who are deep thinkers and who are doing the thing that's effective it incentivizes people to act and do what feels good in the moment well that stuff isn't effective. Like we can look at the numbers. We, you, can, you can take a look at the strategy and it's like, okay, how many racists have I converted to not being racist? And then to me, the, other, the thing that's really evil that I don't like is people who are trying to say fight in, against some form of injustice. And I see this kind of on the news and stuff. And the argument is always raised like, it's not our job to convince racists. You know what I mean? It's not our job to try to change their minds. It's our job to point them out, call them out, and fight against them. It's like, well, what result do you want? Do you want a race war? Do you want riots in the streets? Or do you want less racism? I think that, you know, it takes work. (laughs) It takes a lot of work to try and convince another person or even another group of people that their way of life is inherently inferior to your way of life. There's like examples in this world of this being an effective strategy. There's a guy, I got to learn his name. He was a musician. He's a black guy. He's on the Joe Rogan podcast a while back. And I'm sure if you Google it, you'll find him. But he's this black guy who is responsible for over 200 members of the Ku Klux Klan. It's kind of a tongue twister. The KKK, he's responsible for over 200 members leaving the organization. And I'm talking, this is just one man, okay? His whole thing was, how can you hate me if you don't know me? That was his question. It's like, how can you hate me if you don't even know me? And he wanted to know the answer to that question. So he went out of his way to try and meet with some of the members of the clan and to get to know them. And because he's a mission. I think that that was kind of what gave him the in because uh, music can transcend some of these differences. And he would go to the clan members and they would be like, well, what do you, why do you believe what you believe? You know, you don't know me. And he's like, well, you know, it's proven that black people are just the way their brain is, is wired, that their race is more prone to criminal activity. And he'd be like, my parents never been to jail. No one in my family has ever been to jail kind of thing. And You know, aren't we speaking and having a deep conversation here? And, you know, then they'd be like, well, yeah, you're the exception. But over time, he would continue to have relationship. Just, you know, be a matter of time where they're like, I'm quitting the clan and I can't do this anymore because it can only really exist in ignorance. Not knowing, like, how can they hate me without knowing me? Well, it's because they don't know you. 
You know, there's a lot of liberal people who think that Christians are a certain type of way. But, you know, just you get to know them and it's like, hey, I'm not. That's not that's not who we are. You know, there's a, a lot of conservative people who think that liberals are a certain type of way. And then you get to know them and you realize, oh, well, you know what? They're a person. They're just like me. They believe different things. I was having a conversation with a friend. And he was talking about how people he came across as intimidating and how he was trying to figure out how to be less intimidating. And I was telling him, that's not who you are. Like, I know you, you're a close friend of mine. I don't think you're intimidating. The only reason I don't is because I know you. And I know that you're not an aggressive person. You're not, you're not an angry person. You're very peaceful. And then I said, the reason why people are intimidated by you is because you're kind of a shy person. You're, you're like, you're a bit of an introvert, right? You don't initiate a lot of conversation. And you're, you're kind of a mystery to people. You're, you're unknown territory. And because of your unknown, you're kind of frightening to them. Not because of who you are, but because they don't know you. And it's a thing. It's why do monsters live in the dark? And why do monsters live at the edge of maps in unexplored territory, in ancient maps of the sea and stuff? You always see monsters where no one has ever been before. Well, it's because monsters live in the unknown. Like if you're in a room in the middle of the night in the dark, it's so much easier to believe there's something creepy in the dark. You turn the light on, what has changed about that room? Absolutely nothing, except you can see, suddenly you're not afraid, the same phenomenon is acting itself out racially, politically. Anytime where you have different groups of people and you don't really know those other people, they become literally monsters in your mind because they're unknown. And maybe their culture is different from you, right? And because you don't understand their culture, it just seems like those people are weird and, and strange and, and morally deficient. And it's easier in a society, in a culture that you live in and you understand to think, oh, the people in this society have got it right. They've got it all together. They understand what's going on because you understand what's going on. They might not be any better morally. So I think like a big part of if we want to actually stop racism and we actually want to stop police brutality or whatever, it's going to take a movement of a bunch of people who are dedicated to the idea of getting to know their enemies and treating them with love. But if you don't know, they're monsters, right? Like literally in your mind, like, you know, they're capable of anything. Why? Because you don't know them. You don't know them. It's hard to treat somebody poorly when you know them, right? Like even if you just know their name. But it's very easy to treat the barista at Starbucks poorly when you don't know them at all. And I've learned this doing my cashier job. The way people treat me is very different if I can make some kind of a connection with them. It doesn't have to be deep. It doesn't have to be profound. But as soon as they know my name, they treat me differently. I'm not a stranger. I'm a person. And they treat me like a person, right? But if I don't say, how's your day? Show some concern. If they just tell me something about their day, the way they treat me changes. It's literally like night and day. And it's like, suddenly I become known a little bit and they become known a little bit. And they become way more patient, way more willing to wait. It's a phenomenon. You know, explored territory, you feel safe in explored territory. You feel threatened and literally like physically in danger in unexplored territory. And it's the same relationally, that's the same racially, that's the same financially, that's the same experientially, that's the same everywhere. It's like a thing in our brains, you know?
And it's like, if we understand these things, we will treat people a little bit differently and we'll realize, oh, all I need to do is give people the opportunity to understand that I don't hate your guts. I'm not trying to take advantage of you. I'm not trying to prove I'm better than you. I just want to show you that I'm human, just like you. And I think that's because the thing is, we, we, we think we have to fight against arguments and ideas, and we do, but the real battle is just getting other people to see you as a person, as a human being. And that's not so difficult. That's not so much more difficult. It's very difficult to convince somebody that, say, communism is wrong and capitalism is the way, but it's much easier to just show them, hey, I'm a capitalist, but you know what? I love you. And I'm not trying to screw over my workers and I'm not trying to, you know, I'm trying to treat people well. So it's like a lot of people, they try to engage with other people, but they haven't even like, hello, how are you? It's good to meet you. Where are you from? My name is, your name is, oh, that's awesome. I've been there too. Like when you've connected with somebody, it's so much easier to actually influence that person relationship builds influence. But we try to influence people with no relationship. It doesn't work. It does not work. That's why legislation doesn't bring about morality. But relationship with a moral person brings about a desire for morality in people. Or at the very least, it brings out conviction. They start to feel their sin a little bit. Not because that person pointed a finger at them and said, you sinner, you, but because they showed them what righteousness looks like. And Righteousness is like the light. It causes the darkness to flee. And you don't have to point a finger. You know, Jesus didn't have to point the finger at people. Jesus would just show up and like heal people and and be compassionate. And, you know, Peter met Jesus. The first thing that came to his mouth was, hey, man, I'm a sinner. Get away from me. And Jesus wasn't like, you're a sinner. He was just being himself. He was being a light. Listen, Nathan, I think we've probably talked for a while. So we probably have, you know. Yep, absolutely. want to call it? Yes, let's call it. Before we go, is there anything that you want to plug? <laughs> if you're in an area and you know you don't have a church or you like to be part of a community of believers who are just going after God, come check us out at hybridchurch.net and hybridchurchyeg on Instagram and Facebook. We have services Sunday nights at 6 and we have our prayer nights on Tuesday at 7. You can come out and be a part of uh, what God is doing in Edmonton. We'd love to have anybody. That's about it. Okay. Let's end this episode. See you guys. This has been Because We're Not the Same, a podcast hosted, produced, and edited by Nathan Raymond Ray, with special guest Caleb Sarecki. To listen to more episodes, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Verbal, iHeartRadio, or Podbean. You can also visit our Facebook page or our website, bwntscast.wordpress.com. If you're interested in coming on the show as a guest, feel free to reach out to us, and we'll see about having you on. Thank you for listening.